I'm one of the three founders and I've been with this company from the start. So there's a lot of history of the company inside my head. Hello and welcome to Talking Additive episode 25. This week is a departure from the usual Talking Additive program in three ways. First, in terms of this as a 3D printing business podcast, usually focused outward on our customers, allies, and other experts in the field. With episode 25, we are flipping the microphones back onto our own history, addressing the story of Ultimaker itself. Why now? Well, that brings us to the second unique thing about this week. With the launch of this episode, we are kicking off the Ultimaker 10th year anniversary celebration. You will see this reflected in a number of domains across the Ultimaker ecosystem in the coming weeks and months. But specifically for Talking Additive, episode 25 is the first installment of a mini-series of 10th year anniversary episodes sprinkled across season 3 and season 4 throughout the rest of this year. Later this season, you will hear an episode focused entirely on the story of Kira, which has been a top requested show for us from the very first launch episodes. We have invited a number of current and former Kira team members, along with community contributors, customers, and allies to tell this story with us. And the episode that closes this season, We Are Ultimaker, is less concerned with the plastic squirting robots themselves and more with their human counterparts. What drives a person to commit to a journey with Ultimaker and a 3D printing company? Until very recently, no one left primary school thinking, gee, when I grow up, I hope to work for a 3D printing company. So how did we all get here? Spoiler, not spoiler, across the global Ultimaker ecosystem, you will find these stories all quite unique. But maybe we are all also mad in the same let's transform manufacturing, design, education, and human civilization kind of a way. But let's return to this week and Ultimaker Turns 10, a look back. The emphasis this week is on the early years of Ultimaker, the founding days and several stories of its early transformation. We jump in a time machine to explore 2010 to 2011 through the evolution of the business from the Protobox and Ultimaker Original through to the major leaps forward with the Ultimaker 2, 3, and beyond. In summary, early stories of Ultimaker's founding and its early transformation. We'll hear from the co-founders and a number of Ultimaker's earliest employees, but not all in this episode. Remember that I said this week is a departure in three ways? Well, it was not enough for us to wrap up the early years of Ultimaker in one 60-minute package and call it a day. That isn't what our long-term listeners wanted us to do, and it wasn't what I wanted to do either. So we are trying something entirely new for us, an experiment, if you will. While we already have a mini series of full shows dedicated to aspects of the 10th anniversary celebration, why not create also a series of minis, i.e. short, short, fits in your pocket interviews to kick off this celebration properly. So that is how we settled on the idea of launching 10 mini daily episodes, bridging from episode 25 to episode 26, that each act as a miniature portrait of one of our year one staff members, who, along with our co-founders and some of their early collaborators, helped paint a portrait of Ultimaker in its earliest years. Who are we going to include? We aren't going to tell you. You'll have to check back every weekday from May 25th until June 7th to find out 
and you'll be rewarded with a mini five to 10 minute pocket interview of somebody wonderful. Don't want to miss any? If you haven't already, you should subscribe to Talking Additive on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whichever is your favorite podcast distribution platform so you don't miss any of these episodes. Why all this fuss? Taken as a whole, it has been said that the history of Ultimaker, from kitchen table kit packing to becoming a major player in FFF 3D printing for industry, also traces the history of desktop 3D printing from DIY to B2B. Over the course of the Ultimaker 10th year anniversary series, we will examine this broader story and identify some of the milestones and key indicators that help our listeners better understand the professional desktop 3D printing field and its startling success in transforming industry. The true 3D printing revolution that took journalists a little more time to understand. Track along with us and you will take away a far richer sense of where we are going than when you started. More on this and other topics on Talking Additive. On Talking Additive, we sit down with business leaders, innovators, and allies to discuss the impact of adopting 3D printing in their businesses. How does adopting additive manufacturing positively benefit a business today? How is the role of 3D printing evolving within design, manufacturing, education, and our lives? And what will be possible in the future? Welcome to the 25th episode for the Talking Additive podcast. Talking Additive launches new episodes on Tuesdays, every two weeks. Since 2011, Ultimaker has built an open and easy-to-use solution of 3D printers, software, materials, and support ecosystem that enables professional designers, engineers, and manufacturers to innovate every day. Ultimaker prides itself on solutions that are flexible, productive, and scalable. Its global team of nearly 400 employees works together to accelerate the world's transition to local manufacturing and digital distribution. Oh, uh, my name is Siud Vinia, and my role is uh, currently I'm a research fellow. You have another role, if you want to. Uh, the, yeah, maybe. Yeah, my other role is a role that apparently I took uh, when we started. It's, it's being the role of a founder, of course. Yes. Yes. <laughs> I almost for, forget about it. We do it so much together, right, uh, with so many people that, yeah, I'm the founder of this whole thing, hmm. together with Martijn and Erika, of course. Welcome to episode 25, Ultimaker Turns 10, A Look Back. This episode kickstarts our series of 10 daily episodes to commemorate 10 years of Ultimaker by starting with Ultimaker co-founder Siert Vinia, who these days continues some of the research and exploration he led as CTO of Ultimaker several years ago in a newly established position as research fellow. And now, without further delay, Talking Additive's interview with Siert Vinia. As recently as today, there were messages going around about some of your depriming research now bearing fruit going out to the world. I, I am really passionate about it, but what I also have learned is that doing stuff and making a product, I think it is, you have to think it through all the way to the end. And that is increasingly complex over the last 10 years when we uh, grew the company. And so basically what I have done right now is the D prime, which is just a, not even a, a second order print process, but a third order print process 
But in order to get the whole system running and, and make it reliable and stable, every detail in that process, how far it is away from the print process is, it still needs to work perfectly. And every material is different. Print history is changing the whole uh, process of this tiny thing. And the D-prime is like trying to break the, the filament in a very consistent way that you know exactly how it is going to break and where it is going to break and know the tip shape and that nothing is going to do any harm in doing a print afterwards again. And yeah, that is, it sounds so simple, but it's not, I, I, I noticed. And I think I've done in the last uh, six months about, I, I would say between seven and a half and 10,000 D primes in all different kinds of materials and all different kinds of print speeds just before it and after it and um, making pictures of all the, all, the, all, the, all the tip shapes, taking force measurements and figuring out how much force is required to break the filament putting rings in the Bowden tube, smaller than the tube. So I know that the tip shape is smaller than the tube oh, well. because that is also yeah. very important. Yeah, it's a, and then you realize that having an idea is not so difficult, but making that work all the way through, all the way to the end, it's just work. It's blood, sweat and tears. And it will only work if you make it to the end and finish it off. And that's so utterly important, yes. Some of it is the, the high cost of simplicity, that to, to get an experience that is really introduces no friction to the process, there's so much thinking and so many conditions have to be considered. Exactly. And then it is even if you change something in that process, since we have an open ecosystem, it will affect so much more than just our own stuff. So you really have to also take that in, uh, into consideration and it might it probably is beneficial for a lot of um, other materials that are out there that are in our ecosystem. But we still have to validate that. And that's a lot of work. And uh, But at a certain moment, you have to have also backwards compatibility that if it doesn't work for someone, well, you don't have to upgrade it. And so there's a lot of additional stuff involved. And I think it is uh, for me as a, as a founder, but also as a research fellow, I think I have the, the, my drive is to make the system really work. It's in the end. And I, I mentioned that once to Adrian Boyer a few years ago when I met him in, uh, in London at, at, at I think the, the free print event. I um, can't recall the name. I think it was not the DCT awards. It was the oh, uh, 3D printing industry. Yeah, that I think that's the one. But Adrian Boyer was also there for uh, getting a great acknowledgement in his whole contribution to the, the 3D printing scene. And I talked to him and I said to Adrian Boyer, like, my aim is to, in the future, that no one talks anymore about 3D printing. And the reason is that I want 3D printing to be just so normal that no one talks about it anymore, because then it is incorporated in everything that we do. And it's just as normal as uh, injection molding, but no one talks about injection molding. I never hear people in the store, oh, this is really cool injection molded piece of uh, <laughs> a toy or whatever it is. <laughs> My aim is that it is so utterly normal, but then you have to make that really work so stable and it has to be controlled in every single detail of it. And also all the processes around it and the processes around that. So the third order, as I call it, yes. I think we're going to cycle back to some of this uh, later in this discussion, but I wanted to hit a couple of things about you and your background Yes, on the long journey forward from starting a project with some friends to 
having a company big enough and bold enough to have research fellows, yeah. which is, I think, a perfect role for you. But also, it, it also, it represents such achievement for the Ultimaker ecosystem that this is, we're not like a top polymer company with a billion in turnover. No. Yeah. So let's start with something very simple. How did you first encounter 3D printing? Oh, I think, but then I really have to go way back in, I think, 1995 or 1996. Mm -hmm. And I heard about it. I was studying uh, mechanical engineering at the University uh, of Twente in, in, in the Netherlands. And on the, on, on the, the, the group in, in which I was specializing was the automation group within mechanical engineering, measurement and control. And I heard people about, uh, talking about 3D printing, but there were a few machines, but they were utterly expensive. It, it, it was like in a research phase and the machines were more than a million each. So it was not even achievable for our university to obtain one and to, to play around with it. And that made me think when I was, I think the next day, it was like uh, printing layer on top of layer. And I, I think I had my first uh, HP Deskjet printer and it was printing ink on paper. And I was like, okay, even if the ink is drying up, if you keep on printing on the same spot, it will grow in the end. So maybe you could just by ink getting already 3D, 3D print a little bit, but okay. So that was a, a brain wave that I had, but never played around with. Normally what happens is that you put so much uh, ink on the paper that the paper is completely destroyed. <laughs> yeah. And you have nothing in the end. But I, I think I, I, I didn't think about it for more than uh, a decade afterwards. And when I heard it, about it again was in, I think, 2008, when I uh, started working with uh, Protospace. After my study, I first worked in the, in the big engineering industry, building refineries, chemical plants. That was really interesting, but I also thought was like, I, I need to do stuff with my hands. And I was always sitting behind the desk. And the most interesting moments were when I was at a location of a client itself and we were building something for them. And, and I had to walk around and puzzle out the errors that were made in the design and uh, figure out and quickly solve them because we were just before a startup of a big plant. And I really enjoyed it, but it was basically working with my hands and not uh, carrying piles of paper from one desk to the other desk and asking for signatures. But when I uh, start working at Protospace again, there was a discussion about buying a 3D printer for the lab. Mm -hmm. And I was really like, wow, cool. This is really interesting. And what machine is it? And at that moment, there were a few machines uh, available in the market with a price tag of around, say, 40 or 50,000 euros. And we had the printer from Z Corp. Yep. And that was a really nice machine. And I think the director of Protospace, he really said, I want to have that one because it can print in full color. And that is way more interesting than buying. And that was a Stratasys machine that was printing in plastic. And I think at that moment, yes, we had this magnificent 3D printer out there and we were running a, on a subsidy budget. So it was really every nickel and dime was talked about twice before we spent it. So we had this machine, costed 50,000 euros, I think, and plaster went into it. And one bucket of plaster was a th about 1,000 euros. Wow. So it was really expensive plaster because there were, of course, a, a few special ingredients in there. But that we were hesitant to, to start printing with a printer because of the high price of each print. I really enjoyed it, playing around with that machine, but the, the outcome of the, the, the printer was very brittle because it was made from plaster. 
So you could then suck an epoxy into the material or do it in one second glue, etc. But still, it wasn't perfect. Um, it was not real solid or firm. You could not really do stuff with it. And at a certain moment, I heard about the RepRap project. And I think that was uh, just before I started listening to the, the course of the professor Neil Gershefeld from within the FabLab community, how to make almost anything. Although I had my university degree and yours also had a university degree, we decided let's follow this course because it's in the FabLab community. The community is still small and we are one, one out because we're basically one of the first few labs out there in the world that are not under control mm -hmm. of MIT. So we, we joined that. But we were a little bit bored because a lot of the stuff that we got was about how to solder. Yeah, we knew already how to solder stuff together. It was about milling. We were doing milling every day in the lab. It was a, So it, it, it was like we were a little bit bored. So we muted the microphone and we were discussing, okay, what kind of useful can we do within this time? And I said to him, I just read about this project online. And it's about building your own 3D printer. And so I was like, but this is a, a really cool concept of this 3D printer because it is printing parts that you can use again for a 3D printer. So I started to explain him the project of Adrian Boyer. And he said, well, this is this is really amazing. We, we should not watch this, but we should build this machine. I said, I'm totally with you. And so we asked for some time of the director of Protospace. But at that time, he was like, oh, no, no, we don't have time for that. And uh, yeah, that's a nice project, but uh, you do it in your own time. And we decided, okay, that's fine. We are now listening to the to this course anyway in our own time, in, our, in the evenings. Uh, why not uh, make the evenings a little bit longer and start building this machine? So I was like, yeah, fantastic idea. So Joris and I started to tell that to people that were visiting the lab. And uh, I think within a week, we already had 10 people that said, oh, fantastic. I'd, I'd love to join. Because I was really like, let's talk a little bit out of, about the project of Adrian Boyer. Adrian Boyer came forward with an idea of a 3D printer that consisted only for 500 euros in parts and all the designs were available online. So the building instructions, which parts you needed, where to buy them, everything. Even the electronics designs, the whole software stack, everything you needed was online. And the parts that you needed, either you can order them over the internet, that was also becoming more easy and easy at that time, and we had a community going around that there were more people working on this. So you were not alone. And I think that was really uh, a big click that, that I had. I shouldn't do this alone because it's so much altogether. There are so many domains in this simple printer. Simple between brackets, by the way. It's like you have the mechanical domain of how the machine is moving. It's dynamics. It's a measurement and control of the whole machine. It's you're touching the domain of the, the, the chemists in the materials that, that you put into there. It's the electronics domain. I learned that really a hard time because I designed some <laughs> electronics uh, for the printer in the past. And <laughs> that was not a real success. Yes, it worked, but nothing in the neighborhood of the printer worked anymore <laughs> because of the radio uh, emissions. Doing it with multiple people and connecting uh, with them online, but also doing it in a group within the in the lab with 10 participants, everyone is bringing in a little bit of knowledge. And altogether, we were really quickly in building it together and making a, a nice machine out of it. And I think it took us more than we uh, anticipated. So we were working on it for a year long, one evening a week. Every evening started with pizza. It took me a while after that year before I could eat pizza again. <laughs> but 
but we really enjoyed the, the, the building of the machine. And at the end, I think after a year, we had the machines running, but they were really brittle, so to speak. Not that they would fall apart, but the nuts would fall off, the wires would break. So you really had to invest a lot of time to keep that machine still running. But we gained a lot of knowledge and also brought a lot of knowledge back into the community. Because if you had the machine running, that didn't mean that you could print. But then you had to extrude plastic and the plastic got stuck somewhere in the machine. So that was also a big puzzle. And we started playing around with Teflon. And uh, yeah, but then everyone was like, yeah, but then the Teflon is not working. Or yeah, mine is working, but his is not working. And it appeared to me that the, the Teflon was a really great idea. However, the Teflon part and the, and the hot end, so to speak, they need to be very much aligned. If there is already more than a tenth of a millimeter disalignment between that part and the nozzle, the whole machine could get stuck. We realized you have to have something sturdy to hold the hot ends and you, have, you need a, a piece of, of Teflon to make sure that the transition from cold to hot works really fine. And that was really necessary for some material that I got from Adrian Boyer himself. That was a reel of, of PLA. And he told me, uh, I met him once in the Netherlands and I assisted him together with Eric de Bruyne in, in a presentation. I, I love it. And, uh, and we, this is a side story, but I'll, I'll tell it anyway. We had these machines built and Adrian Boyer was getting more attention over the internet. And there was a conference in the Netherlands and it was for the thousand geeks of the world. Somewhere in the middle of a forest, they would set up a camp. All diesel generators were brought in there. Uh, a whole Wi-Fi network would be set up. All tents out there. People would camp there for a week. And, and they would hack everything. And, they, and Adrian Boyer knew Eric de Bruyne very well. And he asked, Eric, can you help us in, in presenting there? And Siert can uh, come along. And fantastic. So we brought our printers to demonstrate. So Adrian Boyer didn't have to carry anything with a plane and he gave his presentation but we have been out there for two more days uh, sitting outside and printing with a printer on a wooden table and i sat together with adrian boyer and it was a huge crowd gathering around us just watching at the machine and adrian boyer told me well see it i've been i've been playing around with the machine but you just don't want to know how many hours i only spent watching the machine <laughs> it's like Fantastic. When it runs, it's like watching the, the process of creation, the, the process of value creation, and you see it layer by layer growing. It's fantastic. And you do nothing. You just sit there and lay back. This is where value is created. It's right in front of you. And that was amazing to see that come together. And I, I really enjoyed it. And as a, thank, as a thank you for helping him out with the presentation, he said, I got some material of some dudes in, in Australia where I was. And that was called PLA. And he said it's, it's made from, from, it's a bioplastic. So it's, it's biodegradable in the end, but it takes a very long time. So biodegradable, yeah. But I was like, okay, so this, is, this stuff is not coming from oil out of the ground. I think that is really good because that is where we should focus on. And I printed with it and I was thrilled because it didn't warp that much. The layers would uh, adhere very well together. It was fantastic material. It cannot resist so much heat. But there was another problem with it. This material was very hard. If there was any misalignment in the extruder, it would fail. It would hang. It, heat would go up the, the nozzle and uh, you were just, it was a goner. <laughs> you had to disassemble everything to get it, to get it uh, up and running again. And the chances were uh, very big that you would break 
something in the process of trying to unclog it. But it really gave us, and later on also within Ultimaker, the push to, to, to keep on working and make that perfect for printing with this material. Although industry was not acquainted with this material at all, they asked for ABS and they asked for other materials. But in the end, PLA is, I think, still one of the most used materials in 3D printing. And it is serving a lot of applications, way more than anyone anticipated. Mm -hmm. And I think that is a, a big contribution by the, the 3D printing arena. And of course, in the 3D printing arena, more materials have popped up. And, and we just launched uh, this week PET-G. Uh, and I think that's also very nice material. But it's a little bit harder on one side and a little bit easier on the other side. And every material has drawbacks and has uh, pluses that are really useful for 3D printing. But I was thrilled that we were pushed by the PLA material to make that work in the printer. Because it, in the end, we designed a transition zone for cold to hot that still today works perfectly. And in the print course that we have, we designed it for about 500 to 1,000 hours. But we were, we are now investigating a few ones that we know run for nine thousand hours and they start to fail. And oh. we'd really like to understand why, because it's not the Teflon part inside. Yeah. So we're really going to dive into that next week. But this, mm -hmm. this is just a side dish. Uh, it's what I do with it's pu pure out of curiosity. We just want to know and understand why. I think the the why question, and I, I feel also that the why question is, is so utterly important with our company. And that is also, if, if I work on the D-Prime stuff, I want to know why it fails. or And if it's beyond the D-Prime, it's a system fail. Why is the system failing? And then there behind the why is another why. And behind that why is even, so there are five whys. Uh, the five wires of yeah. Toyota way. <laughs> and yeah. they are true in, in, in the, yeah. in, as well in the technical domain. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. That I, I want to loop back and grab one of the other kind of foundational questions for your story that you're already hinting on and what you're talking about. But what really drove you to become an engineer? Like what, yeah. what made you curious to really keep pursuing these things, to, to get all the way to <laughs> really understanding them? I think... Basically, everyone has curiosity. And, and what I've learned is that people have curiosity in different domains. And I think that's the beauty of nature, that we're all a little bit different. But the, my sweet spot is, is in the mechanical engineering domain. And even within the mechanical engineering domain, there are different domains. You have the domain of, of vibrations. You have the domain of measurement and control. You have the domain of heavy metal equipment building. So what I realized within when I worked at Fluor Company, the big engineering company, we were basically making a cooking installation, but then huge, just huge pots and pans, but every pot was about 100 meters high or 50 meters high. It's just cooking for giants. <laughs> that's, well, basically that's industry. But my sweet spot is in things that I can hold in my hand, that I can swap around that I can play around that I can peel off that I can put back together again that I can take out the bolts myself and I don't need a crane to <laughs> just replace a bolt there is a sweet spot in size for every uh, person and there is a sweet spot for the domain in which you are so that's how, how I look at it and then why do I like the mechanical domain because it's very predictable in the end yeah there is some unpredictability in there but there is not like a human factor in there 
if you take organizations, that's how, how I always try to explain it. Every human being in an organization is basically a system that has an input and an output. And it's fantastic. But the input and the output, you cannot always predict them because there is a lot of additional input in that system that you just don't know. And it could be uh, a very nice drink the evening from your colleague that was some input for them or that they that you're, that something happened in their environment or that they're going to move. So that also influences the, the, the output of a human being. And I always tell it like, uh, no, the, just give me the machine. That's very predictable. As, as soon as the human aspect starts to enter the system, <laughs> I don't know anymore. <laughs> oh, that's really funny. I want to say something that pays tribute to the, the human domain of what was happening at Ultimaker, even in the earliest days. And I heard this both in interviews over this past week with both Sander van Heelen and Kevin, the, the bot whisperer, in completely different conversations. They both talked about the time where it went from a job that they got because they were curious to something where they were disappointed when it was Friday and couldn't wait for Monday again, that there was something happening there that was uh, so vibrant and really engaged them and really pulled them in. Yeah. And some of that is coming into the system there. You've got people bringing more of their passion, imagination, and effort in than maybe they might have predicted for like a job they would take. What happened to create that kind of exciting situation? You went from protospace that was already an exciting environment that had basically an education community knowledge mandate to something that was both a company and, and, and starting to sell all over the world and yeah. finding systems to handle like the too many boxes everywhere to becoming a company that can afford to have a, a research fellow. Uh, <laughs> research fellow. Yeah. I think our own curiosity, but also our absolute uh, ignorance of the whole thing that we were doing combined with i think in, in in say about 2005 2006 blogging became really interesting everyone could start a blog on on the internet and everyone could send information to the internet really easily but that meant that also people could connect a lot more at that time i described that you don't need a big company to build an international network anymore you can build a network of people that have the same uh, interests as you and you can connect to them and you can find each other on fora and that was more getting in the mainstream at that time and that meant that also people that have the curiosity and these, these kind of things what if i had the tools myself i could start building everything oh that would be awesome that still gives me a thrill today i have a small lathe in my own lab and i i jump behind it whenever i i can not because I like the using the lathe, but it gives me the possibility in making something that I want to try on the printer. And I print a few parts so it fits perfectly in the whole system. So for me, there are all tools in getting to an, a brainwave and, and, and spitting that out into reality and just give it a go. And not being told by people, no, you shouldn't because you will hit the walls. It's going too fast and it's physically impossible, whatever. I want to see myself if that's true, yes or no. <laughs> I'm, so I'm a little bit stubborn in these kind of things. Why can't it be? And maybe there is a good reason, but yeah, I think it gave me the option to do the failure myself. And I think that is so powerful 
that you really start to understand more. You can learn in, in universities big books on, on theory why some things work and why they don't work. And it's really useful because there are concepts in there. But it is even better if you start having these these uh, feelings on your own. Does this work or doesn't this work? And sometimes I still make mistakes. I had a, I, I built a small trailer for a sand filter. And the, the thing that I had to put upon it was 100 kilos. But <laughs> apparently for my simple engineering, ah, just a simple plank will be enough. <laughs> no, it wasn't. It was totally bending through. So I make mistakes. But then I think, yeah, but that's cool because I learn. And uh, I know I can start calculating these things. Well, uh, okay, but then I don't take into account the weather and that it is raining on top of the plank and then it gets soaked and it fails anyway. So I think the opportunity in having that failure, but also building something and let's see where we can get and uh, don't know where the horizon is of this. And I think a lot of people uh, got that thrill as well. And we joined forces all together by meeting each other online, but also joining within the company and so we had to formalize a structure beneath it to 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 and i think it felt like a real community of people having the same feeling let's see where we can get with this what this is new and but underneath we had to create a structure in because so many people would join that we have to to start organizing something and it also became a business and with business comes liabilities and, and responsibilities and well then at a certain moment it's not a hobby anymore and you need to have people to well to do it today and tomorrow but the day after as well so you start hiring people and when you hire them at a certain moment you think yeah but there is a third company uh, getting a part of the salary because we don't hire them uh, ourselves but via via why not put them on our own company bill and, and pay them directly? Uh, it's a lot cheaper and it's for them more easy. And then we can all do this the whole day and keep on working on it. And I, I think that was really fantastic. And I think a lot of the early days that 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 spirit grew in the company. And that spirit's still there. Although we did formalize quite a lot and also that goes with ups and downs and over formalize. It's also a path we have to find all together in, in how much formalization do we need? Because I do know that at a certain moment, you need to have some formalization under there, under the organization, because if you don't, things get weird. If something happens, you, ha you have to have a set of rules altogether that you can play by if it is needed. Although I really love to work without any rules and without any salary, but hey, that's not possible in this life, <laughs> unfortunately. So I've been interviewing a lot of the longtime, quote unquote, first day employees, everyone from Harma to Bart Koning to, to Sonder, Marit, and they've talked about what it was like in the earliest days. James talked about coming for his interview and being forgotten and <laughs> wandering around until Menno found him and, and took him to Eric. And Eric's like, I, I think I told you the story again recently, yeah. but uh, yeah. And Eric's like, wait, why are you here? Oh, cause you scheduled an interview with me. And then they started talking about 3d printing and he forgot to interview him, but hired him. Yeah. But what Sonder and Harma and Bart and Cohen and, and several of these folks have, have mentioned is that there are a lot of people who stayed with the company a very long time, yeah. far longer than most tech companies. Yeah. But they also, and this was a, a quote that I uh, noticed earlier today from Sonder, 
that people found different roles. They drifted throughout almost like the tips of fingers all throughout the, the company and stayed. And it kept bringing that passion and spirit to new people who were joining. Yeah, that's right. A lot of people from the first days, they grew into positions that organically arrived in the company at a certain moment and they just jumped into it because they thought that was really even more suitable for them. And we let that happen always. I think if you're trying to keep people in positions that are 80%, then you do a good job. But if they find a position that if that they have a match of uh, more than 90%, please do so. And sometimes that's a little bit painful. But if you do that and give people those opportunities, and it cannot always be, but I'd really love to do that because then people will thrive even more. I, I had a lot of discussions in the past within Fleur. I had these reviews and, uh, well, you're good at this and good at that. So we're not going to do anything about that. But this is not so good. So you need to train in that. And I was thinking about it and I was like, yeah, but I'm not good in it because it's not my sweet spot. So it will take me a lot of effort to make that better. And the things that I'm good at, if you give me a little bit of extra training in those, I can be more than excellent. Make combinations of people that then have the matching or fill each other's sweet spots in because that is i think the best way to to deal with these things and i think the people from the early days they could just create their own sweet spots and they did because they felt it was necessary and they could also make sure that they contributed even more and i think that is really fantastic to see yes yeah yeah and maybe we were just too busy and thinking about it <laughs> and they just picked up stuff that was there i i really recall also that at a certain moment we were trying to launch the ultimaker 2 and we were already planning for an exhibition in uh, new york but the machine was far from from being finished and martin was organizing the, the design but at a certain moment i asked him how far are you and uh, while well, he had almost one example machine on his desk we had to start ordering parts and get stuff together and i was like okay but this this time frame is just not going to work so i uh, grabbed my knowledge that i got from my earlier companies okay now i need to do a little bit of management over here so i started to, to ask i think meno was there harma was there and i said to harma do you know what injection molding is? And she said, well, uh, actually, yeah, I heard about it. Okay. Well, there is a company in China and we're trying to get these parts in and they, they need to work. And this is your mission. Arrange yourself a ticket to China, go there and uh, make sure that the injection molds are ready in time. Because I, I learned that if you go there, they will start work for you. But if you do it from here and only via email, it's not going to work. So I asked Arma, please go there. Yeah, but I don't have any knowledge. I don't care. As long as you're there, they will start working for you and you will learn on the fly. Don't worry. And she did. She was just like, whoa, okay, I go to China. Fantastic. <laughs> and I, I said, okay, do me one favor. If they have all the parts that need to be ejection molded and they have them ready, take off each shape 20 different pieces and put them in a bag and carry them yourselves so we don't have to wait yeah. for a shipment because shipments can get lost and and she did and when we came back we were i think three days before we had to uh, pack the stuff to bring to new york amazing but it fit all yeah. together it just worked and i so meno he studied interaction uh, design i think and i asked him do you know anything about sheet 
metal and sheet stuff. He said, no, well, I don't care. <laughs> this is your mission. Everything that is made from a, a piece of sheet is your responsibility awesome. right now. Let's just make it work. And he jumped into it and he started doing it. So I was not critical about people's background. Did they have the the right knowledge in in the right technical domain? No, I, I, I knew they had the right spirit to make it work. Mm-hmm. And and that that gave a thrill. We all made it work. No one was doing what they were actually taught to do. I mean, I was doing administration. I well, <laughs> if there is something you shouldn't give me, is administration. <laughs> so all these things together, that I think that also gave a, a huge thrill. Getting responsibility of something you just don't know, but you know that people trust you, and get, just make it work. And they did, because I knew I could trust on them. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, but that is a, and I think that is really important that I also learned uh, that trust, trust in people is so utterly important. If, if people start feeling that you don't trust them, then everything becomes complicated mm. for some reason. Yeah. And I also learned that the most valuable thing I can give to people is utterly trust through everything. I trust you. I can give money, but money is a derivative of mm. trust, if you ask me. But yeah. uh, economic people think differently. But anyway, <laughs> the, the most valuable thing, also in relations, trust is the ultimate thing you can give to, to someone. Mm. So I gave them all the trust I have. And they managed. Yep. They did. I was thrilled because we managed. We, not me, yeah. we all. And I think that was the spirit. I also often in my mind refer to a phrase that I learned from my student union when I studied. And we had a, a song that we sang together always. And one of the phrases was, we're all different, but together we are one. And I think that phrase really resembles for me how I look at the company. Everyone is different, but together we are one. We are luckily all different, but together we make it work. Yeah, that's a fantastic story. From my experience, a really telling portrait of of Voltmaker. I was wondering if there are other moments as you've gone from the DIY kit moment to a company that now really addresses and is trusted by industry. Some other sort of telling moments where you've seen an important story for Ultimaker. At a certain moment, we realized that putting the kit together, we started to complain ourselves a little bit about it. We needed to have assembled machines, so that's what we start doing. But what really happened then, because it was not a kit anymore, and you sell a real product with a, a plug and it needs to work, then the whole game changed. And why? Because you have to have a CE certification on it. And CE certification is not so simple. You have to do it yourself, but doing it for the very first time is something completely new. Yeah, what do we have to do then? Which guidelines are there? So in the end, we hired a small company that could help us in in, in guidance. And then these weird things pop up that people could put their fingers between the, the gears of the, the motor itself. It was just wooden gears, but yeah, but so we had to put an additional piece of plywood next to the gear so people could not put their fingers in anymore. And what also happened then and there was that we started doing some yeah. measurements on the electronics. And then it became really apparent that a mechanical engineer <laughs> had designed the electronics, I have to admit. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> it was me. 
what, what we then did is we also started to puzzle around and just a, a different story just just before that because we mm-hmm. had uh, Koen de Boer as an intern yep. redesigning the whole electronics and make it uh, into one PCB. He was doing his uh, thesis on that. That was really nice. At a certain moment, we, we had that design ready, but it was not performing in the in, in, in the tests. And we could not figure out that. So we started ordering test equipment so we could start doing these measurements that normal people do in a completely enclosed room, these Faraday uh, rooms. But a friend of mine, uh, Tom Nagel, he worked at OC and he said, we have these rooms ourselves internally. So if you want to play around, I have a colleague and he really thinks it's fantastic and uh, let's play around with the machine and you bring the board and and we will try to uh, figure out what is causing all this emitting radiation. So I was driving down to Venlo because that was where it was and I had a few boards and then we were sniffing with a sniffer on the board and this guy was made, ah, I think I know what it is. This chip, ah. Okay, so it's that chip. Yeah, I think it is. So mm-hmm. they were already diving into the data sheets and, and figure out could they desolder one of the one of the pieces that was attached to the, the PCB, one of the legs it's called, I think. And and I was like, we want to know whether it's it's that part, yes or no. So I took I, I, I took a plier and I and broke it off. So let's test again. And they were like, Yeah, but you ruined the board. And it was like, <laughs> okay, it's 60 euros. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> my time is more precious here. I want to know whether this is the answer, yes or no. Okay, okay, we tested it. Okay, that was yeah, that was really the one emitting all the radiation. Okay, that's good. So now we know what we need to filter upon. But, so it. it was really interesting to see that that they were like, yeah, but you cannot just ruin a board. And I was like, if I need to, I just do it, and I don't care. So I also started uh, thinking differently in what is time and what is what is the price of this board because I need the answer and I'm not going to do a study. I need to know it now because I'm here and we have the, these tools and we, we can measure it. So let's do it right now. And that's what we did. I still recall that. It was a very expensive evening because I was so thrilled that we found what was making all this noise that I drove home a little bit too fast and I got a really huge <laughs> bill of speeding. <laughs> That is why I still I still remember that it was oh, like man. yeah it was worth yeah. it it was worth it. <laughs> no really yeah. Anyway, okay. So your question was what happened in those days? We started really worry about timelines. We started to worry about the quality of the parts that were needed. I was very happy that we had these electronics and Kuhn made a redesign, and we got that working together with a Dutch party before we ordered stuff from China. And it was a PCB with uh, full hole components. Well, you cannot even order them anymore in the Netherlands, I think. So we got that stuff from China, but I think 50% of them were just not working. They were, And it was only a very simple PCB, but it was not working. And uh, I asked that uh, that guy from, from that company, I said to him, okay, so my total bill of uh, uh, material is, is this, and, and, and this is my cost price. If you can give me the whole assembled thing and test it, then... I'm willing to pay the same price. And he looked at the components and he was, I think we can do that. And that is how he trusted me and I trusted him. A real big trust started the relation and that really helped us off because at a certain moment, the whole market of stepper drivers was going crazy because a a big party in the, I think it was HP or someone, they started ordering uh, all the supplies of of these, these stepper driver chips. So or the whole wrap community and everything deri- derived uh, from it. 
was to in, in total shock because we couldn't get the, the, the Allegro chips anymore. And he knew that and he said to me, this is what I see coming and I have some channels in the broker's world and I can, I can dive into that. And I said, please do. And at a certain moment he said, I have a, a broker and I, I can get some reels for this this price. And I said, well, then just do it, just buy it. And he said, I, I order a sample piece and this guy could make pictures out of the chips to, val to validate whether it's a replica or it's an original one. And they were original. So he said, okay, buy the whole reels. So we have supply for the next nine months and probably in that time it will uh, all be good again. So he brought in a lot of knowledge. And then also for the CE marking, you have to have ROHS uh, marking and that, all these kind of things. But because he was in the Netherlands, uh, I asked him, I, I, I found him, I said, do you have ROHS on your, yes, of course, everything that I bring out of my doors is ROHS compliant. Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh, thank God we have these suppliers locally available they already are in this in this ecosystem of having these compliance things and that really gave me a lot of good feeling about bringing stuff more local again getting the supplies in from making the the, the small orders on alibaba back to orders in germany in, in the netherlands in belgium because you knew that the the quality standards were just right and if they weren't right, you could step into the car and drive there and uh, complain about them and they would show you. China is a little bit different. The nozzles that we got from, from Alibaba, uh, the first uh, 25 were great and the next 100 were a total disaster because there was uh, debris inside the nozzle, the hole was not in the center, they were all different shapes, different sizes. It was a nightmare. So you could not rely on, on the supplier. And then we started ordering in the Netherlands, but because the number was so big, the order started to be just a little bit more expensive instead of ridiculously expensive in com comparison to the order in China. So that really gave us a lot of benefits of shopping around locally again with all this mm -hmm. high quality stuff. We, we didn't have to look at one nozzle anymore because they were all correct. <laughs> that Before that, we have to, <laughs> to look through each and every single nozzle to check whether yeah. the hole was right. And you don't, you just don't have time at a certain moment anymore to do that. Yeah, that was really cool. And I think, so, yeah, what happened in these days? Yeah. Oh, one yep. of the things that happened was that we had now fully assembled printers and they yeah. looked good. And at a certain moment, we had a, rented the barn behind the, the school building that, that we had. And first thing happened was that we had a little bit of rain and it flooded the whole barn. So... <laughs> We learned don't put anything at the, at, uh, on the ground because it will get wet if it rains. <laughs> so everything was put on pellets after that experience. But then I think uh, a couple of months down the road, we had a break-in. We were robbed and they stole about 20 printers. And we were really like, but why? This is such a unique product. This is the uh, first feeling that I had was like, holy moly, someone is stealing from me. This is, this feels so wrong. I, we have worked hard for this. It's our blood, sweat and tears. It's our money and someone is stealing it. it I never had that feeling before. I never, I, I've never been robbed, but this felt, and it was not just my money. It was all our money. It was from everyone that worked at the company and we were really pissed. <laughs> and the stupid thing is that we didn't, at that moment in time, we didn't have that many printers in the field. So if a few would pop up somewhere on a second-hand side or whatever, it, well, we would know. We already started to have a serial numbers then. 
And very rapidly, I think within two weeks, everyone was looking on all these channels. I don't know how they are called in the US, but uh, we have Marketplace or something like that. And people sell secondhand stuff out there. And at a certain moment, three or four popped up <laughs> on Marketplace. So we called the police and they went out there and yeah. they were busted. And we were like, what idiots? They don't have any knowledge of, at all about this market. So on the one hand, we were very happy that they were caught and, and the machines were recovered. But uh, yeah, the, the strange feeling of being robbed is like uh, w- really weird. So we had this alarm installation afterwards in the whole building. And we already put some cameras in, but not an alarm installation. But afterwards, we had an alarm installation. <laughs> but what happened was that only a few people were called when the alarm went off. And it was a very old school building. So what happened? I live in, I live, uh, say, 19 kilometers down the road from that office. And I was call- being called in the middle of the weekend at, at two o'clock or three o'clock in the night <laughs> and the alarm went off and we didn't have a subscription that some security guys would go. No, I had to go myself. So I had to step into the car <laughs> because a mouse or something or a small animal was walking inside the building and the whole building was just full of mice at that moment. <laughs> so we had the, uh, every night, what a nightmare, really, truly. That's an amazing portrait of a schoolhouse location. I was wondering if you could introduce the schoolhouse, describe it for us, and what your plans were for it and how it was used. Okay, later. yeah, yeah, that, it's, it's really cool. In Geldermalsen, basically, Martijn was living in Geldermalsen, and he had a small atelier behind his house. And I was living in Haarlem, and Erik was living in Tilburg. And Martijn had the most space in his house because he built this atelier kind of thing behind his house. And so we're doing everything in, uh, at, at his place. But at a certain moment, we were selling so much printers that the laser cutter that we bought was in the middle of the living room and was cutting 24-7, even in the weekends. And it smelled like a, a fireplace all day yep. because of the burning wood inside the laser cutter. And boxes were starting to pile up in the weekends because the DHL would only come on Monday and not on Sunday. And at a certain moment, his wife said, this is nice, but now you have to get this stuff out of my house because I'm getting sick of it. And I I, I was totally with her. It was yeah. like, nah, not, not a livable situation anymore. Martijn uh, had been cycling with his son and they passed a building on the edge of Geldermalsen. And it was a very old building. And there was a, a, a plan made by the local government. And that plan was called 1984. And that was a future plan made in 1974. So it was then <laughs> talking about the far future, making like a small hint towards the book. And in that plan, it was to be torn down. And that whole area was to be an industrial area in the, in the future plans of Geldermalsen. However, the building was still there and it was abandoned. And Martijn saw that it was abandoned. And he said, maybe we can just uh, rent that building for, I don't know, maybe a little bit of money. And uh, so he called the local government about what is that building? And they told him it was a former agricultural school with a big barn behind it for all the agricultural equipment in that school. But the school was already not used for decades anymore. And uh, at the moment it was not occupied and they said it has no heating and uh, the electricity is bad, but if you give us 400 euros a month, you can rent the whole building. Okay, but you have to get the rest sorted out yourself. All right, all right. So we started looking and it was like a huge amount of space for us. 
and we found a small basement and in the basement was some leftovers of oil heating system of 50 years old and half of it was just vanished electricity was like with these wax wires still but we said hey for 400 euros this is fantastic let's just do it other buildings were far too expensive for us so we rented that building and figured out yeah but it was december which is the cold period here in the on this hemisphere it was a little bit freezing so we started renting these these heaters these gas heaters and we were having gas bills and uh, would declare them with an accountancy but they were like yeah but it's from a gas station yeah it's not <laughs> for my car it's for heating up the building and we're like yeah how do you do that <laughs> That was just filling gas canisters at the, at the gas station. <laughs> anyway, at a certain moment, we said the, the, there were neighbors in, a, in another building and they said, we, have a, we already have a gas pipe here, but if you, if you want to, we can help you get a, a trench to your building and get a gas pipe in. And then we decided to, to buy a gas heating system. So our first big investment was buying for 10,000 euros a gas heater to heat up the building. And the rest of the system actually was pretty okay. We had a, a trench dug and have the gas pipe in. And the neighbors said it was behind their meter, so they would pay for it. And he said, we will pay you. But in the end, we never paid any dime because for them, it was just too complicated to split the bill. <laughs> actually, it was very cheap to sit there. I think we've, we've been there for mm -hmm. one and a half or two years or so, or maybe even longer. But at the first, we thought only the ground floor will be enough. And it was three rooms and uh, we had plenty of space. And I think we were only one month down the road and we completely occupied already the whole ground floor in, and we starting to buy bins for every single part and starting numbering them, etc. Uh, hiring a few more people. And I think also that was the time when we just entered that building that uh, Sander van Gelen uh, jumped in. Because I remember I was doing parts in, in these bins and, and trying to number them. And, and there was a guy standing in the middle of the room. <laughs> I just didn't know who he was. And he was wearing a, a hat. And I asked him, who are you? And, and why are you here? Oh, I'm Sander Verhelen. Okay, uh, yeah, I'm uh, applying for a job. Oh, okay. Can you then help me put this stuff in these bins? <laughs> oh, yeah, I can. Okay, you're hired. <laughs> it's really something that... that <laughs> I love that story. <laughs> it was all right. So, <laughs> and that is how it... Yeah, and Sander Verhelen is still yes. with the company. It's fantastic. But that is how it started, and I think that was really also just yeah, get your arms out of your sleeves and just start doing it. And I think within uh, three months time, we occupied the whole building because the upper floor we also needed. And then some trouble hit the road because we had an electrician come in and uh, we asked him to check only the ground floor of all the electrics. And he fixed a few wires, but we didn't ask him for the upper floor because we thought well, we will never ever have to use that space this year. But, uh, so within three months, we were occupying the whole building and we start plugging in all these printers, uh, one after the other. And at a certain moment, we had, a, I think, three, four, <laughs> five times a week, we had a power outage. <laughs> so at a certain moment, we just started calling the guy again. I think you have to do the upper floor as well now. And uh, we also realized, yeah. okay, not 10 printers in one plug, and then, oh, only two in them and two in that one. And <laughs> so we had to play around with that a little bit. But that, yeah, it was a really, really amazing time. Might you tell a story about going from that scenario to the next two sites, which I guess was the Helder Molson office that that's still there, and then Salt Baumol, right? Is that the right yeah. one? No, I think what happened was that there was a, a social works uh, place, and we had a lot of stuff 
outsourced to to there so it was very much around the corner and we put there a few laser cutters and they start cutting the the plywood right. they would package the the, the bags with the parts etc but the reorganization forced us to to relocate that to and they said we have a similar facility in Zalbomo, but that will stay and this one will be closed down they uh-huh. wanted to combine those and therefore we shifted that to uh Zalbommel. Uh, but then that building was so big and we became so big that we also moved to uh, the other office in Geldermalsen that we are still occupying for R&D right now. But that was for sure not a production location. At that time, it was still in the old building, but then the, the, the other half of the building of the social workplace came free and they said, you can rent this the the other half and we can even combine more work together for you and i think that at that moment we started doing that in salt bommel and it became more of a separate activity so the whole supply chain and manufacturing became more as a separate unit um and i think on one hand that is good and on the other hand it is not good because on the one hand it is it's okay because it it requires a different mentality of people doing production and doing r d is totally different Marketing is even, again, something totally different. Sometimes people that start every morning at 7 o'clock and they clock out at 4 o'clock in the afternoon and they know exactly what to do and they love that is totally different from an R&D guy who sometimes walks in at at 8.30 and the next day walks in at 10.30. But he also works at home because it's more flexible. And so sometimes that doesn't match up in mentality and i don't think within our company that would have been a problem but i heard a lot of people from other companies who say well it's a different world and sometimes they don't match so that we it organically grew in two locations it was not supposed to be but i think within our company it also would have be fine having it together it's, they both have uh, pros and cons so and at that time, the rest of the organization went to the other building in in, in Geldermalsen, which then g- gave a lot of more space. And I think at that, that, at that time, the company really got into a more complex situation from a management perspective. Oh, complex, not for real managers, but for me. Because the time changed from people ordering and willing to wait for three months to uh, receive their box, the whole world changed to uh, next day delivery in a couple of years' mm-hmm. time. And I, I think a lot of people have forgotten about that but i think 10 years ago the world was totally different you would have to wait for weeks to get something and today that's totally different so we we were having this production now in salt bommel but we also had to finance more production and therefore we needed more money and then we were discussing investors or a bank loan or what should we do and we were really called by a lot of investors and but we had no people to 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 challenge us in what game how should we play that and i had a friend in denmark and at a certain moment i was just i didn't know um uh, what to do and so i called him and i said i need your help so i said that's fine i took a plane i went down there i had dinner with him and i asked him the question i have this option i get investor on board which one axel he said okay yeah well, we'll totally change your company. Okay, possibly you can get a bank loan. Oh, do a bank loan. Don't think even about it. T- take a bank loan. And I was at that moment in time, I was like, I, I, I don't know the difference. I, I never played the game of investors and A, B, and C rounds mm-hmm. or whatever it was. 
but he told me if you can get a bank loan go for a bank loan because you have the complete structure and the control of your company still in your own hands and that is really beneficial and i think that was one of the most valuable yeah. advices that i got and i told that to to eric and martin and they, they concurred and then we we started organizing a bank loan and and i think that was at the same time that or just after that i met our former ceo and and eric sas and and they were totally with me yeah let's get a bank loan and uh, we'll help you getting that organized and at that time we were the first company ever to have an investment loan from the european mm -hmm. bank that was a, a tool in that time because it was really going uh, bad in the whole world because of the 2008 yeah. crisis and the european bank came forward with an investor's loan kind of a construction and we were the first ones and we really did good on that one and we still had full control of our company so that was basically awesome yeah but that meant that you had a big loan and that means big responsibility and starting to have more people on the paycheck means more responsibility and that is something that i will never forget the moment when we were growing that fast that I didn't have it under control anymore and no one had. And at that time, everyone was doing a lot of stuff and we only had the bank account to, to watch and whether we had enough money to pay salaries, yes or no. And at that moment, we saw the money on the bank account really drop very quickly. And I was like, oh my God, oh my God, this is not going well. We were getting orders in like hell and we were trying to, to put them everything in place, but we had no control over the money flow, the, the cash flow. So I really squeezed my, my buttocks, so to speak. <laughs> and at that time I met Eric Sass and Eric Sass, he said he was in finance and he had a great job and I talked to him and was a friend of Martijn. And I said, I need your help because I, I, well, we have this company and no one is in control over the money and we, I just don't have a clue what is going on. Please help me out. And that's what he did. And he, he, he took a spreadsheet and he started doing some calculations over the weekend. And he said on, on Monday, I got a phone call from him and said, I looked at the numbers and I think it will even go more down until Thursday and Friday. But from that moment, it will pick up again. And then, uh, so I think you will be okay. But it was close. I think wow. we only had 10,000 euros left on the bank account or something like that. And he said, but I did some calculations. You're fine. You're going to make this dip. <laughs> yeah. Because on the other end, money was also flowing in. But at that time, I really realized I need good people to, to manage this. This is not good anymore. And that's what when Jos and, and, and Eric Sass came in. And they came in from different angles, but apparently they have met each other already 20 years before. And, and they picked it up. And from that moment on, and they, they helped us in getting that loan and, and manage and, and guiding us through the rest of the growth process. That was just amazing. But I really squeezed my buttocks together. <laughs> Being scared, that, yeah. Uh, but I was wondering if you might have some reflections over the past 10 years, some insights that you take away from the story of Ultimaker that might be really interesting to share with Talking Additive listeners. My big takeaway over the last 10 years, if I've seen the company grow from scratch to what it is right now, I think it is a really magnificent ride. I must admit that the ride has been going from left to right so much that I almost had to throw up a few times. <laughs> Seriously, this is, I'm not joking. But uh, what I really think is, and that is, I think we've really helped in, in putting 3D printing on the map in the world mm -hmm. and make sure that it is not just a gimmick, but 
is really becoming an asset for companies to have and people also to have. So it's cross-domain. It's not just companies. It's more than that. And it gives a lot of opportunity, not just us, not just the industry, but for everyone to contribute in finding solutions for simple problems, but also complex problems. And having the tools at hand, tools are everything. And I think we've just made a, a hell of a tool. And I think there is so much more to improve in making these tools even more accessible, more reliable, more easy to use. The system is growing rapidly, but also in complexity, and it is still manageable to make that work with a push of a button. But behind the scenes, I can admit that's a lot of work. Mm -hmm. It sounds simple. It's not. Just trying to break a filament and do that in a consistent way is not that simple. It's really work, and there's a lot of work in making a good product. So I'm really proud of all the effort we've put in and we've made a printer, but even more than a printer. Now building that ecosystem, a material station besides the printer is really giving a lot of added value. And I have to be honest that when we introduced it, it was far from ready, but I really wouldn't work without it anymore. Seriously, if I like to use it, then I'm probably not the mm -hmm. only one. And if I don't like it, then probably I'm also not the only one. There is something maybe I want to add. I, th I, I still think 3D printing for me, what it really tickles is concepts in, in if we can create matter in the world and we can reshape it again and again. And possession of goods is not really valuable anymore, but the value is in the, the moment of use of a product, but we can recycle that again. And then do that in a way that, that nature can also deal with it afterwards again. That would be awesome. And then we would have a totally different kind of society in which having a possession gets a different kind of a, a feeling. Today we want to have, we want to have everything. And then we ship it from China to, to here. And it's just ridiculous what we want to have. I still think 3D printing really should bring down the value of goods so we don't need it all together anymore because having is not an issue anymore. Maybe it is good in not having stuff because then you really think about stuff. <laughs> and yeah, that's how I, how I look back. I also look back at the 10 years and I see a lot of effort from a lot of good people, uh, a lot of good chance, blood, sweat and tears. Also, stumbling upon these things at the right moment in time. If we were would have been there five years earlier, it wouldn't have worked. If we were there five years later, it would have been a totally different game. I've been fully in 3D printing, but uh, the whole world is changing. And you have to be able to adapt to the changing views in the world. I think that is also what I really appreciate about Ultimaker is that we can move around. We start projects because we think it is wise and we also kill them also because we think it is wise. And we change on a daily basis everything. And I think that is needed in this time of the century even more than ever it was. So change, change is, the, is, is the only thing that is constant. <laughs> and let's embrace that. It's hard, but let's embrace that. We hope that you have enjoyed our 25th episode for the Talking Additive podcast, Ultimaker Turns 10, A Look Back, featuring Seert Vinia. As a reminder, don't forget to check back daily from May 26th until June 7th to catch Ultimaker Turns 10 minis that each feature an Ultimaker Year One employee, co-founder, or early collaborator for this group portrait of Ultimaker's earliest years. 
If you have any questions about any topics covered during this episode of Talking Additive, we invite you to post on Twitter or LinkedIn to hashtag Talking Additive, all one word. On June 8th, we will return with episode 26 of Talking Additive. Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and join the conversation by signing up for news and announcements at talkingadditive.com. Thank you again to Sierra Vinia for joining us for episode 25. Our series producer is Hannah Gabrielle Takini, studio manager David Roberson, executive producer Nuno Campos, music and episode sound mix by Brian Scarry and Giulio Carmasi of Hummingbird's Custom Music and Sound. I am host and producer Matt Griffin, and thank you for listening. On Talking Additive, we hold conversations with colleagues and customers about 3D printing's impact on business.